0: Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kath Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com.
1: And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast.
0: And today we're talking about Minute 37, which begins with a chain being wrapped around Mjolnir and ends with Jane rescuing her computer's mouse. Joining us in the show today and all this week, we have Jessica Plummer who writes about all things comic books at bookriot.com. Definitely check out the articles. There's a uh, At the time of recording, there was a wonderful piece on the fashion choices of Squirrel Girl that was very uh, entertaining and educational. Uh, Jessica's been a frequent guest on my other podcasts, and she also recently had a short story published in the book Sword, Stone Table. Uh, Jessica,
2: so good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Awesome,
0: awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about you and comic books, because I know that's one of the big things you write about over at uh, Book Riot.
2: Yeah. Um, I love comic books, superhero comics in particular. I've been reading them, um, for almost 20 years now. Um, and, uh, I do tend to lean more to the DC side of things. Um, but like with so many people, you know, the MCU sort of opened up the Marvel characters for me and I have read very many Marvel comics as well. Um, but yeah, I just, I love superheroes and I love bright shiny superheroes like thor in particular
1: yeah this
0: is this is not the dark and gritty that uh, you and i often talk about uh, i'm a batman person and you're much more on the superman side of things and i think thor is uh more in the superman camp as things go
2: i'm literally wearing a superman
0: shirt right now <laughs> perfect <laughs> all right we'll have more on that right after this break
1: Are you interested in chatting with some like-minded Marvel fans over on Facebook? Well, join our Facebook group, the Marvel Movie Minute Podcast Executive Lounge. That's right. It is a lounge. Very loungy over there. We're also on Instagram and Twitter. Just go to truestory.fm slash marvelmovieminute and click on the link for the social of your choice.
0: So we are still at the hammer party, as I'm calling it. We now see this big truck uh, Who discussed like this? Seems to be some engineers at work, some good thinking. We don't see any markings on the back of the truck, but if you look carefully on the steering wheel, you see the word Dodge. And I'm guessing that's because no truck company really wants their truck to be highlighted as the one that falls apart when it tries to pull a hammer. But you know, I mean, <laughs> some people just love product placement no matter what it goes. And and yes, yeah, so we get this great scene of a truck trying to pull, and you know, the hammer just will not budge, and eventually the the whole trailer of the truck gets pulled out.
1: Now, what's more likely here? I mean, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but, like, I mean, this chain, would it rip the bed of the truck off? Would it more likely rip the hitch out of the bed? You know, like, or would it just, like snap like i i don't know i'm so curious about the real science behind this it just like the fact that the whole bed of the truck rips off seems like the truck was just made poorly i mean i just don't know if that's that would actually happen
2: or the chain was made really well yeah (laughs) i think this might be a time where we're sacrificing just
0: a tad of reality to comic effect because yeah as someone who worked in car maintenance for a year or so i saw a lot of cases where people tried to tow too much and the hitch had just snapped right off uh, in a couple of cases, the chain broke and it smashed, happily never hit somebody, but you know, could snap, you know, snap back and do damage to the truck. I never saw the whole truck bed get yanked up. But, you know, it's it's Asgardian physics. So who knows?
1: Well, so speaking to that, here's a question for you, because we talked about a little bit yesterday about like, what if they just took pickaxes and like, you know, picked, you know, kind of chipped away at the rock? Obviously, Mjolnir would still be attached to the rock, and obviously it's heavy, so it would kind of fall to the ground. But would they be able to pull it? Because I think it kind of goes to that conversation that they have in a later movie. If they set Mjolnir down in an elevator, you know, I mean, the elevator doesn't, it still is able to move, right? So would a chain be able to pull a rock with Mjolnir attached?
2: Would they be able to dig that deep? I wonder if Mjolnir, like, creates a connection to the Earth where you actually can't dig out the earth that's beneath it. I can see that. That's interesting. I, I, yeah. I'm, not very, I'm not
0: up to date on my Arthurian legends, but I don't think there's anything in the sword and stone about people taking pickaxes to the stone itself. So I don't know if we have any uh, you know, mythological basis for this question, but it's, it's an interesting <laughs> one for sure. And so of course then we see the uh, who is driving the truck with a great line of did it work, and this is our uh, Stan Lee cameo. At this point I think it become pretty established, even before the MCU and the Uh, Spider-Man movies, the Blade movies, and stuff like that. If you're doing a Marvel movie, we're going to get Stan Lee somewhere in it. And Jessica, what was it like for you? I know uh, you've talked before on my podcast about how uh, your feelings on Stan Lee.
2: Well, it's funny because, you know, this movie came out a decade ago, and I really was not very well-versed in Marvel then. But I remember going to see this movie with one of my best friends who has been a Marvel fan her whole life. And so I was that person sitting in the theaters getting elbowed by my friend going, that's stan lee that's stan lee and now i have become that person (laughs) so it's like very circle of life um but yeah it's just it's always so nice to see him like stan is such a he's such a character and he's such a like certainly if you want to dig into like dig into his entire career there are times that he did not always treat his co-creators well there are times that he took credit for things that he really did not deserve there are times that uh he centered himself when he should not have been centering himself which is why he's the one who gets to be in every movie and nobody else but it all worked because he's such a charismatic person and like he's not an actor but when you see him in these scenes like he's just so adorable
0: yeah
2: you're like Oh, Stan, especially now that he's gone, it feels it feels nice to see him. It's like very sort of nostalgic and, and touching, especially because he was obviously in much better health at this point than he was in his later cameos towards the end of his life.
0: Yeah, I, I recently had the chance to read one of the most recent um, Stan Lee biographies, and it's it's very much a, you know, hit piece to some extent on stan and definitely was a reminder to me of the don't look too close at your heroes um because a lot of it goes into the stuff about him and jack kirby and like did he who should have gotten credit and stuff like that and i don't i don't think it's the one definitive account there's a lot of different arguments but yeah it's it's i remember when i first heard about all of this stuff after stanley died there was a lot of stuff that came forward and i worried would that cause kind of forever tainted but i really like the way you phrased it jessica like yeah there's did a lot of stuff. He's a very complex man. There's a very complex history. But the role he plays in the MCU is kind of a connective tissue of holding all these movies together. It, it's nice for me to go back and remember, like, yeah, this has been happening all that time. Because in almost all of them, he seems pretty capable. He, he seems pretty comfortable just making fun of himself. You know, he's almost always the butt of a joke in whatever cameo he was in.
2: Yeah, definitely. And you know
1: it I mean we should just point out as we're recording this I mean there is a lot of heat still circling this whole issue I mean Marvel's suing comic creators to for the rights of all these things and so I mean there's a there's you know we're aware that a lot of this stuff is going obviously in context of this we're not here to talk about all those specific issues but I mean there there are real issues and it is you know people and big corporations and and you know uh, people are people too and you know sometimes bad decisions get made
0: one thing i really love about this podcast is that uh as we go through we, we try to read the name of every single actor who's involved and like lift up you know a lot of the people who are the kind of like below, below the fold and i think it's you know with comics especially it's one more thing to always stan lee was a very big part of marvel but there was a lot of other great people involved as well
1: yeah absolutely i, I just want to point out so i know we've kind of disproved now with what if on on tv that that stan lee is actually Uatu Uh, Earth's Designated Watcher which they kind of alluded to in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 Mm -hmm. Uh, but if he had been Uatu I love this idea that okay so that means that somewhere between because you know we know we're on June 1st 2010 um, between April 12th and May 14th 2010 he would have been I can't remember where he was Michigan I think where he was drinking the bottle of Pingo Doce uh, from Brazil that had some of Bruce Banner's blood in it and then uh, somewhere in that window also may 7th he's at the stark expo where he's mistaken for larry king and now june 1st he's down here in new mexico so he's all over the place
0: <laughs> man's got some serious freaking fire miles or Indeed. that truck is better than we thought it
1: was yeah <laughs> well, that's, uh, well it turns up again so yeah it's it could possible
0: be. So then we get this great uh, kind of mood change because we've had that song by Billy Swan that we are talking about before, you know, kind of, I can help, bouncing around. And and then it, it, we just get to the laughter and then we just get this wonderful sort of like ominous music as we just see the top of the black car pull up. What, what was kind of your thoughts seeing that scene, Jessica, of this car, you know, by now we know S.H.I.E.L.D., we know everything that's going on, but just the first time watching it, seeing that car pull up.
2: We do know S.H.I.E.L.D., but I feel like this was really when Colson seems to be, for the first time, a really competent person. And he definitely like transforms between sort of the like shapeless government bureaucrat that he seems to be in the first Iron Man. They really honed his character into someone who seems capable and badass in the second Iron Man. But this is where that sort of, he stops being an Iron Man supporting character, and he becomes yet more of that connective tissue. And it's a real... Sort of, there's a TV trope um, called taking a level in badass, and I feel like this is absolutely that moment for him. Even though all he's doing is dressing really nicely and being sort of impassive over this, like everybody else in the scene is kind of a lovable buffoon, and then he steps into it with this real seriousness. And it's it, it it was a surprising and intriguing change to see that happen the first time, even though now it's, you know, it's much more expected because we've seen so many hours of Colson. Right. I think that's a great way to I think that's a great way to put it because in those first
0: movies, especially with Iron Man, Tony never gives Colson or SHIELD any respect whatsoever. It's just a thing on his calendar that he'll get to. And they get to be helpful, especially at the end of the uh, second Iron Man movie, but they never really We always should feel about like yeah, like kind of like you said, like they're not quite lovable buffoons, but you know they're clearly the good guys. Here, they have a sense of real menace as they're pulling up, and we'll certainly see later in the movie. Um, they're not, you know, that they aren't the most helpful the way they may have been with Pepper Potts. You know, their reactions to Jane and Eric and the research is pretty hostile. Um, and I, I just think this is a great way of introducing them and of like really doing that mood change.
1: Well, and that's, I mean, you, you mentioned that, like, the mood change is such a big thing. I mean, and certainly, like, the music really shifts here. I mean, we're going from the very kind of fun country song, I Can Help, which is a lot of fun. We're clearly enjoying ourselves right now. And now we have this moment with, with Colson. And yeah, the music is just very, very serious now. And, like, I mean, it's totally, totally shifted. And interestingly, it's a little different the way that it's actually put together the, the construction. If you go back to the end of Iron Man two, it's not exactly the same, but it still carries some of that kind of the seriousness, that, the gravitas of that moment. Um, You know, so, I mean, either place you look, it does feel like there is this heaviness of shield kind of uh, coming in to make this uh, kind of make this discovery and kind of take over.
0: I also love the moment where he says, sir, we found it and nothing else because We've talked before about how this was the first movie made where they'd really committed to this MCU idea and they knew that they were going to have some legs with it. And I love that they're just, I think the people who know and get it, it is incredibly clear that Sir is Nick Fury. But they never explained that, you know, and I thought this was one of the first moments of the MCU where they start dropping, they start sort of saying like, look, you can enjoy this movie if you've never seen anything else. But if you've done your homework, we're going to have some things in here that you're going to appreciate
2: it's hard to remember when you look at it from the perspective of where we are now where you have like these movies that you know everybody knows about and they're combining the previous history of 27 other movies and there's 400 you know A-list actors in front of a green screen but none of this had ever been done before like even at this relatively minimal level of crossover like let alone what would what Avengers would be just Picking up threads from a previous movie about a completely different character and seeing what happened—like it just not, had not been done. Yeah,
1: it's it's very creative the way that they did that, and uh, yeah, I think that it's it makes for um, a bold uh, kind of experiment that Feige decided to do, and I you know I'm glad to see that it it did pay off. Yeah. Before we cut, um, just a couple quick things. So there, there are a couple more townies I wanted to point out real quick. We see um, Seth Coltan, who we're going to call Laughing Townie. He's the one who's standing next to JMS as the truck bed flips over. Okay. Um, he's standing next to him, totally cracks up. And then there's another one that I think we see right before it cuts away. And he appears on the, the edge of screen. And I believe that's Ryan Schaefer. And I'm going to call him the Whoa Townie because he... Gives that look of, of shock when he sees the truck bed flip off. So,
0: I feel like Seth Colton is a name I recognize. Have would I have seen him in something else or know him from something else?
1: I don't think so. Uh, I'm, okay. If you look at his list, it's Thor. He did two things: obsessed and obsessed Memorial Day, where he plays the character Seth, and then he was in Days of Our Lives for uh, for a number of episodes. Huh? It's like six. So, just one of those yeah. names then. Yep, just one of those names. So then we do cut back
0: to the office. We have a couple of scenes that kind of come, uh, that I want to kind of sh- talk about all of them uh, and then we'll, we'll go over them. Because, Jess, if I remember, these are the scenes that made me pick this bunch of minutes. So we start with a shot of Thor looking, I must say, incredibly good in a pair of jeans. Uh, I don't remember if low-slung jeans were actually in fashion at that point, but certainly um, they show off his V quite well. And we get a little moment of him being kind of uncomfortable in the jeans. And then we get this great thing of, you know, he's walking out and... Darcy is just outright staring at him and Jane is doing this thing of like, she's trying hard not to, to look at him, but she keeps kind of like, you know, bringing her eyes up. And then, you know, Darcy says that he's pretty easy on the eyes and Jane's kind of, oh, come on, but but sneaks one more look. What, what do you get out of this scene here?
2: So when I first saw... Thor in theaters, I came out of the theater, I turned to my friend and I said, why didn't you ever tell me that Thor was for girls? (laughs) Which is like a very, I mean, that's obviously like a very reductive way to put it, but I had always sort of in my head, I wasn't super familiar with the, the Marvel version of the character. And I'd always sort of thought of him as like one of the like really sort of macho franchises that's just like very much for dudes. But this was about a space prince with flowing blonde hair who like rides his white steed along a rainbow bridge <laughs> and then comes to earth and falls in love with a girl <laughs> because she's really smart and like this movie is much more of a romance than any of the other marvel movies structurally we were
0: talking just last week uh and early in the podcast history about how it's basically a rom-com and oops i hit you with a car is just a classic meat cute you know
1: i mean it's yeah, yeah totally
2: it's absolutely a meat cute and like the Hitting him with the car twice—it's just so good. But
1: plays well, yeah.
2: It's a romance, and Jane is a much more central character than like you know your sort of requisite love interest for a superhero movie. Which you know I love Pepper Potts and I love Betty Ross, Hulk. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, yes, she's a really in depth character, Um, (laughs) or um, Peggy Carter. Like I love there. There's so many great loving Tris but they are loving Tris whereas Jane is much more of a co-protagonist in this movie which is all sort of a macro way of saying that I feel like this moment you know it's kind of become requisite now and it was not then because this was so early to have the male hero shirtless like that is sort of just what you do when you do a Marvel movie um and it's because you didn't really have that with um with Iron Man, like when Tony is shirtless, it's it's for plot reasons because his chest is being operated on and it's kind of gross because there's a big hole in it. (laughs) Whereas with Thor and with the first Captain America, you have these very specific scenes of here is the hero, he is shirtless, he is beautiful, and this woman is looking at him Mm. with obvious desire. Like he is the visual object of her desire and i feel like as with so many things in the mcu as we get further away from why we did the thing in the first place and more just this is the formula it sort of loses the the reasoning behind it and like okay well sorry actor who's playing the superhero you are going to have to develop an eating disorder so that we can get you shirtless for 10 seconds because that's what we put in the movie but at this point it feels much more story-driven and organic and it is not about you have to ogle the superhero because that's what you do at this point in the movie but this is a romance and this is Jane becoming interested in Thor as a person for the first time as opposed to a subject of her study. right?
1: Uh, I, I got two things, uh, two points. Uh, one, I just, just in defense of Iron Man, I do have to say that there is a moment in the cave because uh, you know, back when we did Iron Man minute, um, our guest pointed out how hot he was. There's a scene when he's in the cave and he's in his. Uh, you know, kind of his tank top, and he's all sweaty and glistening, and he's he's you know pounding on the metal with his oh, uh, yeah. sledgehammer, and she's just like,
2: I call that the Hephaestus scene. Yes, <laughs> that's very
1: fitting. That was very much for uh, for her. She's like, that's that's like that moment where you know Marvel started giving us all these hot guys, and so I, which you know was nice to be aware of. And the other point I have to make is the funniest time that your point. Um, really came to play for me is when all of a sudden Paul Rudd of all people was also like Paul Rudd, why is he now t- shirtless and like sh- showing off his muscles <laughs> and everything like this is paul rudd so yeah it's it 's funny how they really have kind of turned it into a thing where uh it is kind of uh, an element of these stories that is uh kind of an important thing to include
0: well, and just talk to us more about the fact that as you said it 's not just that he's shirtless it 's that we're kind of seeing him shirtless through both Jane and Darcy's eyes, although clearly primarily Jane's eyes. What, what, is, what What's kind of going on there in terms of movies and how this is so different than what we normally see?
2: I mean, there's a very, you know, well-known concept in film theory, the male gaze. And it's the idea that um, female bodies, when they are presented on screen, are presented um, to be observed by an assumed male audience. And we don't see the reverse very much, if at all, with male bodies on screen. And of course, the idea that a body could be neither or both of those things is not even considered in most film
0: you do not have to be female to find chris hemsworth with just a pair of jeans a (laughs) very good looking sight but yes absolutely the overall thought is definitely true so go on
2: right yeah the whole idea of course is is extremely um, heteronormative and cis normative but um because the female gaze or i'm sorry because the male gaze is so um omnipresent it's very hard to unpack what the female gaze might be because even if we're considering the scene as, you know, the, okay, fine, then this is the female gaze because it is a woman looking at a man on screen. The director is still male. So there is still very much a male gaze happening. Like, how do, we, how do we decouple male assumptions of what women want from what women are actually looking at? I think Paul Rudd is a great example because Paul Rudd has been a heartthrob for, you know, what, seven centuries that did look exactly <laughs> the same. Yeah, um,
1: <laughs> pretty much.
2: Like, I have considered Paul Rudd dreamy since I saw him in Clueless as a kid and he didn't have to take his shirt off for that because that's not what the appeal of Paul Rudd ever was and it didn't need to be. And in comics specifically, you'll often see when people point out that women in comics wear really skimpy costumes and um, are drawn like with ridiculous, unrealistic proportions and they're always wearing high heels and like, why are they always positioned as sex objects first and heroes second? You'll see sometimes often it's uh straight cis men will make the argument that, Oh, well men are objectified too because Superman's really buff. Thor is really buff. Like look at all their muscles, but that's not really, that's a male power fantasy like that. I don't look at a picture of Batman being really ripped and I go, wow, desirable. I'm like, You drew him to look like he can bench press a car so that you could feel strong. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really crucial that in this scene we have these women looking at Thor. It's not just that Thor is shirtless. It's that he is actively being gazed upon by women and we see their reaction to him and we see that there is a variety of reactions to him. Like it's desire across the board, but Darcy expresses it very openly, which I love that about her. And Jane (laughs) is much more like trying to be polite
0: yeah it really struck me how different <laughs> those two reactions are you know that she's there's just that wonderful shot that i feel says so much of her trying to act like she's looking at her notes but she kind of you know casts her eyes up and then quickly down and darcy's like he's a good looking man um and i just because I, yeah i think it gives that whole spectrum of it's not saying that every woman's going to look at him exactly the same way or every person of whatever gender who finds masculine presenting people attractive is going to look at him the same way, but that you get these two different perspectives that I think just really, it it seems very fitting again for the kind of rom-com also of like, you know, sometimes our heroine needs someone else to sort of point out like, Hey, he's really good looking and it's okay that you think that, you know, that feels like another rom-com trope that we get sometimes.
1: What's funny about all this too, is Thor is totally oblivious to the whole thing. Like he just, he, like he clearly has no sense about the fact that he is walking around looking like this you know he's just like looking like is this how i put these on like he just seems completely out of it which maybe makes it work all the more
2: he's never encountered a non-natural fiber before he's he's like this is for a zipper
1: (laughs) he's never had to yeah like how do i how does this thing work exactly and eric of course we just have to point out is oblivious to everything that's happening at this particular moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so then we get um Darcy with the wonderful hey sorry i tased you, which i feel like in terms of like the insecure non-apology apology, that's that's pretty high up there. Is that like i don't think she's actively like not happy about it. I feel like she, it just it has that sort of like, you know, mom said i'm supposed to apologize, so i i'm apologizing. Is that kind of energy you get from that sorry i tased you?
2: There's the moment where um Jane uh, is like, oh, I didn't tase you. Darcy tased you. And Darcy says, yeah, or she says, it wasn't me, it was Darcy. And Darcy says, yes, I did. And she's so proud of herself. And you know, she's still proud. She's going to be proud of herself for tasing somebody her whole life. And when she finds out she tased a god, she's only more proud and good for her.
0: Yeah, it has this sort of energy of like, what she wants is for him to say like, oh, no, it's actually pretty impressive that you were able to do that. You know, something like that. It's a little bit of a fishing thing there.
1: So here's my question about this, because we were just talking about this a little bit yesterday. Because yesterday, as they decide, you know what? We need to go and drive across New Mexico and find this guy. She pulls out her taser. She is ready to do it again. So, so what is the switch? Is it just because he's hot? It is like, like, where's the mental switch? Because I mean, Eric has pointed out this guy is dangerous. He's like destroyed that hospital room. We need to be real careful about this person. Darcy seemed worried. Like, is, is like her, you know, kind of attraction to him now, like completely putting her in a place where she's ignoring the fact that he is
2: potentially dangerous? I think she would tase him now, even if even though he's hot, if she felt like she needed to. Like, I think Darcy very much sort of exists in a cartoon universe, like the whole movie a little bit exists in a cartoon universe. But Darcy very much, I think, is like perfectly willing to roll with things in. A zany way. And so if somebody needs to be tased, she'll tase them. If somebody needs to be ogled, she'll ogle them. And if it has to be the same person (laughs) back to back, that's just efficient. Right. I mean,
0: one thing I love about the scene is knowing the fact that I, I am deeply allergic to love triangles in movies. I just find them so, such a boring trope, as well as just the idea of like two women both interested in the same guy. And, and, of course, we know that, that never, like Darcy is never competing with Jane in any way. And I, and I feel like even in this scene, we're getting that because – and maybe that's even why Jane is a little more shy about it because Darcy seems to be like – it's not like, oh, I'm thirsting for him. I want to see a way to, like, ask him his number. It's just sort of like, wow, that thing hanging on the wall at the museum is damn good looking and I'm going to keep looking at it. You know, I, I feel like she's almost discontin- – <laughs> she's just like, I'm going to enjoy this image, you know, without – Whatever Jane might be feeling about it.
1: Yeah. We'll certainly have some more to talk about with that tomorrow. Mm, definitely.
0: Definitely. So then Thor is, uh, while discovering the, uh, wonders of fibers is also one discovering the wonder of this weird little thing that's connected by a wire to the computer. <laughs> and Jane here is it's again, it's just such a wonderful subtle scene. She is, you know, she goes up to try and stop him from like fussing with her computer but has, I don't even know how to describe it, but it feels like you get this one shot where she is so aware of her body in relation to his body and like how, imp- you know, like she there's kind of a like she just is, she's going after the mouse, but she realizes like, oh, oh, I'm I'm right next to you and you're not wearing a shirt. What What's your take on that that little moment we get, Jessica?
2: I mean, it feels very much like a a a feels like the moment in Captain America where Peggy almost touches Steve's pack and then doesn't mm-hmm. like to the point that I kept thinking that Jane does that, but she doesn't, but it has that same energy. Like somehow you're right. Like it's conveyed without the actual motions happening. And I think, I mean, they're both good actors um, and they're like radiating chemistry at each other, but I think it helps that he is literally twice her size. Like, I don't think of Natalie Portman as necessarily a very small person, but I believe she is like quite petite, and the massive size disparity between them, I think, really makes it. Because often, I mean, I don't know much about the, you know, the art of movie making, but I feel like often um, movies will cheat a little to keep that from happening because it's easier to shoot actors when their heads are roughly on the same level. Um, I mean, we know that RDJ is standing on a box every time he's in in. Uh, scene with Gwyneth Paltrow because he has to be, but here they really allow you to see that size difference. And it, it makes it feel very, very, uh, palpable and tactile. You feel that physical energy between them.
1: Well, that's what I noticed because she runs over there and we've been seeing her, you know, watching from afar. And she, I mean, she looks regular size. And (laughs) I mean, you know, from, from our perspective, when we're just looking at him, I mean, he seems regular size too. I mean, he seems obviously incredibly built, but he still seems regular size. But when you put the two of them together, suddenly you're like, oh, he is an entire, head an entire like you can pause it and you can see like when she's in front of him his entire head is over her head like he's just a giant and and so and and then of course as as he kind of looks down at her and kind of gives that smile it's that sense that you know that you know he's also noticing her so yeah there's there's a little bit of that uh i think that this this is kind of where it starts I just want to say something real quick also about when when Kenneth Brana talked to Hemsworth about doing this scene, he's like, do you mind doing it like shirtless and playing it that way? And Chris, like, was like, totally like, are you kidding? Of course I do. I, I have been working months to make my body look this way. I it better be seen. So he was like adamant about doing it because he's just like this took a lot of work to get to this place. So.
0: I can't possibly remember who it was, but I remember reading an interview with someone who had been like, you know, the the third member of a superhero team in some movie a long time ago, and he talked about how he had like really, really worked out, and then they cut the scene of him being shirtless, and he was so mad wow. <laughs> like that never got to get on screen. So yeah, I can, I can understand Hemsworth's perspective. Um, <clears throat> it is unfortunate that we have his body looking so good and him looking so good, except like we see his beautiful eyes. And oh my god, those eyebrows! Like I think at this point we can just name this podcast "Oh My God Those Eyebrows" because we keep talking about it. Yeah. But wow, it's a bad look.
1: It's the it's the eyebrows. It's the wig. It's the 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 frosting like bleached on the, the beard. Like everything looks wrong. Like he disappears. Like his whole head kind of disappears into his skin. It just ugh. It is horrible.
2: I uh, it just it gives me war flashbacks to when I was in high school and uh, my hairstylist. Talked me into dyeing my eyebrows red to match my hair, and it was not a good look. Oh, no. <laughs> but at least it was not committed to film, and nobody's doing a podcast about it that I know of. <laughs>
0: Listeners, I will do everything I can to convince Jessica to post one of those pictures, but I can make no promises. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's about all we have to say about this minute. It's really going to set up a lot of stuff we're going to talk about a lot with the next couple of minutes. And uh, Jessica's so excited you're going to be here for, with us for the rest of the week. Do either of you have any other kind of last comments you want to mention?
1: I just love the fact that this was Smith Motors as like a car company to allow for these massive windows that we have here. Because the fact that we have the two of them and then like an amazing vista of like the New Mexico uh, backdrop. I mean, it's, it's it's a gorgeous, like all around, it's a gorgeous shot. You know, Natalie Portman, Chris Hemsworth, New Mexico landscapes. I mean, it's just all sorts of prettiness going on here.
2: Yeah,
0: very nice movie to look at. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Well, Jessica, for our listeners who are just getting to hear about you, um, you're on a bunch of my podcasts, especially uh, Comics History, that folks should definitely check out. Jess is a fantastic resource on the entire history of comic books. But tell us a little bit more about uh, your writing and what they can find on uh, Book Riot and other places.
2: Uh, Yeah, so I write mostly about comics, occasionally about other things, often about comic book history, fashion and comics, that sort of thing. Um, You can find all that at BookRiot.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess underscore Plummer. And as you so kindly mentioned, uh, I have my first published fiction in an Arthurian anthology that came out uh, this summer called Sword, Stone, Table.
0: Yeah, it is a great story. The book Very itself cool. is fantastic, but the story uh, is really one of my favorites in the book. So definitely check that out. So I'm super excited for the week to come. Jessica, thank you so much for being a part of this. Andy, thank you as always. And to all of our listeners, send us feedback. Let us know what you think. And most importantly,
1: have a great day. Till next time, true believers.